0: Welcome to episode 196 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Now, Alberta has been in the news for energy issues for for a long time. This is, and and I've written a lot and reported a lot about the Alberta and the energy transition. The one thing I haven't done yet is interview somebody from a Chamber of Commerce. And I'm going to do that today. And I'm going to be talking to uh, Deb. Yedlin, who's the president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce uh, since uh, 2021. Before that, she spent more than two decades as a business columnist for various media outlets. And of course, I, when we lived in Calgary from 2000 to 2010, I remember her as a columnist for the Calgary Herald. So welcome to the interview, Deb.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, look, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Beca- and I have to tell you that uh, I was doing, I was prepping for this interview, and I was going over your website, and I saw the page on, you know, the, the chamber's position on climate change, and I shouldn't have been surprised, but I kind of was. And the reason for that is because there's so much rhetoric. The, the, the discussion around climate change and in the energy transition is so polarized in Alberta, and. I, I get a lot of business people who don't like my take on it, and I kind of assumed that the chamber would be more in that camp than the other camp, but that's not what your that your uh, your web page said. It's addressing climate change as a challenge of our time, with the world moving to a lower carbon future. Alberta's resource industry faces an existential threat. That's essentially my, well, mostly my argument, right. and. Give me your reaction to that. Like what's going on in the chamber in the business community in Calgary that would lead to that conclusion by the chamber?
1: Well, thanks for having me for, to start off. But the reality is that we know um, the way to achieve the energy transition and decarbonize is through the, through the energy sector itself. So you need both. We talk a lot about the and conversation. It has to be energy and the environment. And there is definitely a way to do that. And I think one of the things that sort of always sits in the back of my mind is a conversation that I had with the late Rick George, who was the CEO, present CEO of Suncor. And he said to me that we needed to have an adult conversation on about putting a price on carbon so that we could finally start to address decreasing emissions in a meaningful way and providing some certainty uh, for, for industry, broadly speaking, to start addressing the issue. And so I often think about that conversation, which surprised me at the time. I was you know, still a journalist, still a columnist. And I thought, wow, so here you have the president and CEO of Suncor saying we actually have to have an adult conversation about a car- price on carbon. So so much of what so, so fast forward to today, that's part of what informs where we are, because we know that the world's moving towards a lower emissions uh, standard. Uh, we need to be part of that. Otherwise, we risk being left behind. And so how do we make sure that everybody's collaborating at the right levels and the right policies are being put in place so that we can achieve that lower emission uh, standard, uh, which is good for not just uh, Canada, but you know, will result in the development of technologies that can be also exported somewhere else? need to do the
0: same thing and we have to say that calgary is a very very innovative place it doesn't get enough uh respect for that uh and there's uh the five years that i spent in the oil and gas industry in calgary uh working for a company out in the fort uh sorry in the um uh foothills that's the word i was looking for the foothills industrial park uh, You know, there was nothing but little startups and medium sized companies that were operating out of there that were, you know, manufacturing and developing technology was used in the oil and gas industry. Some of it had application, wider application than just oil and gas. But I want to talk about the oil sands for a minute, because um, I I wrote a book. I'm sure you haven't read it. Not many people have, but you know, actually, the few who did enjoyed it. It was called uh, "The New Alberta Advantage: Technology, Policy, and the Future of the Oil Sands," and in that it, happened. I argued, in it, I argued that the oil sands companies got it. Like they've been working since you know, like 2008 or so. Uh, they've been working with like Dave Collier at Cap, and they were they were talking about carbon pricing, and then they had they had these you know secret meetings, the five oil sands CEOs and the five environmental group uh executive director, starting in 2015 and they'd hashed out this deal over carbon pricing and in a hundred megaton emissions cap and all of that stuff and some of it got put into the climate leadership plan in 2015 from the uh the rachel notley government and and i and i and I argued that the the companies got the fact that the world is is uh, decarbonizing and that that uh Carbon competitiveness is a, comp- is a business competitive issue. Yeah. In fact, that was their term. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I mean, Suncor just recently kind of backed away from some of its, its uh, clean energy initiatives. So, and it, you know, that's four or five years ago now. And I haven't, I, I would still argue that the, there still needs to be a broader conversation around that principle. Where does your business community stand on that?
1: Well, what I'd like to just sort of remind your listeners is that from the 100 megaton emissions cap and the companies that, that participated in that was born a couple of things. One was COSEA. COSEA started the Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance. But then we had the Pathways Alliance. Pathways Alliance to Net Zero, which is now called Pathways, um, uh, which committed to decreasing emissions. It's the, the largest oil sands producers, 95% of oil sands production. And they started meeting. Every Friday, to figure out how do they come together to risk capital to really move forward from an from a, an emissions standpoint, how do we decrease emissions? Uh, so that's so there's a couple of pieces that you're talking about. One is there's history of companies coming together to solve big problems, and what's really interesting is Cosia came together. They shared over a billion and a half dollars in technologies and patents and intellectual property, unprecedented on the planet then all of a sudden comes the oil and gas um OGCI, oil and gas innovation uh, corporation which is all the big multinationals that have come together to basically copy what cosia was doing so first mover there and then we have pathways pathways comes together to say we're risking capital to decrease emissions to build carbon trunk lines to build sequestration hubs and this is unprecedented on the planet there is no other industry that has done the same thing that Pathways has done. Doesn't get enough recognition. But before that, think about this. We had um, Aostra. Aostra was a partnership between academia, private sector, government. Aostra resulted in sag processing that enabled the extraction of the oil sands. So we go from how do we work together to get this stuff out of the ground to how do we actually make it, you know, produce it effectively to how do we make money at it? And I still remember the headline in May of 2005, oil's over 60 bucks a barrel. And all of a sudden people are starting to make money. And then it's now how do we decarbonize? So this is version whatever, 4.0 of the energy sector in the oil sands. So we've innovated through the piece, because if we didn't, you wouldn't have 3.4 million barrels being produced from the oil sands today.
0: Well, that reminds me that if we're talking about Peter Lougheed and Aostra, uh, you'll remember that Lougheed wasn't all that popular for what he did in the 70s, and at one point was banned from the Calgary Petroleum Club. So he may be St. Peter now, but he wasn't at the time. And and that, I think, kind of sets some context here, because, uh, you know, it's one thing to point to the oil sands, and I would love to sit down and have a much longer conversation with you, because <clears throat> I... I've done a lot of reporting on that and have a little different take but that's not why we're here today. I'm kind of curious at the little, that's the the big company, the big oil producer, Alberta's big oil take on this, but yeah. what about your other members? Because you have members all throughout different, you know, parts of the of the economy. What do they think of this?
1: They see us as it being needing to be part of the and conversation nobody can be left on the sidelines because then nobody wins. And the issue of course is how do you do this to ensure that there's affordability and energy security at the same time? So I would say that people understand the importance of it. I think they're if they're concerned, it's about those two factors. But I also believe that we're seeing a very different view of energy that is uh, an agenda that's being set not necessarily in Canada, but well, probably partly in Canada, but there's just been such a a shift in terms of how do we use and produce energy, um, which is very different than it was five years ago. We know that if we decarbonize the barrels that we produce here and the MCFs of gas, we know that we can ensure that that resource bounty that we have can continue to be produced, which generates, you know, a lot of money for provincial coffers across the country. This, you know, you, you have to make sure that your asset that represents 22% of exports is viable. And so people are looking at it from an economic standpoint, too, saying, well, if we don't have an energy sector that's viable and that can't compete uh, across the board, whether it's cost or on, on carbon, um, this is actually net negative for Canadians and Albertans. So how do we make sure we're at the table? And how do we make sure that we can continue to realize the benefit of what we have?
0: Well, that leads me to a question about the natural resource innovation supercluster that the your chamber is advocating for. And what the heck is a natural resource innovation supercluster?
1: Well, you know, so the government's, you know, um, uh, wanted to uh, support a number of different superclusters. And what we want to see is, you know, a natural resource innovation supercluster that sort of brings everything together. And provides a platform for uh, research, development, commercialization as part of this energy, the transformation of our energy systems. Now, we have the Clean Research Innovation Network, which was a bit of a compromise to the the Natural Resource Innovation uh, Supercluster, which is doing its own work. But I also think that, and it brings a lot of companies as members under that umbrella We also have an energy transition center that's been established in Calgary. We have a number of um, uh, energy clean tech accelerators, a very healthy um, private equity venture capital family office ecosystem that's also supporting uh, the uh, the development of new energy technologies. So there's a lot of different pieces that are actually happening in Calgary. So is it actually de facto an energy supercluster an innovation supercluster? Not really, but it's actually coming together on its own in an in an organic way, and it also includes the University of Calgary through the Creative Destruction Labs Rockies.
0: Yeah, I, I've reported on most of those uh, developments or organizations that you're talking about, and 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 I would I would agree with that. And if I so if I understand you're correct understand you correctly the the goal of this is to is to build some bridges between all of those organizations yeah. because i mean you see uh, industrial clusters are the backbone of the modern economy and yeah. you see a hydrogen uh uh hydrogen hub hydrogen a cluster emerging in vancouver and in, and in edmonton you see other kinds of you know Ontario is an obvious one with its automotive uh, cluster and 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 switching over to electric vehicles and then building out the supply chains like EV battery plants. Okay, so all of that, all of that is good stuff. Um, What I have to ask you a question, because clean electricity uh, and I'll back up a little bit here. Probably I do about four or five hundred expert interviews in a year. And yeah. half of them are outside of Canada, so most of them would be U.S. and Europe, with some in Asia Pacific. And I talked to entrepreneurs, and I talked to academics, and what have you. And very uh, the top thing, uh, the top item on a list of where companies are going to set up, where these clusters are going to evolve, is clean electricity. That's the number one thing. All right. And and of course, it has to be elect- It has to be uh, reliable, and it has to be uh, yeah. affordable, and all of those kinds of things. But that being clean. Is is an important thing. So, two three weeks ago, we had the provincial government do a moratorium on renewables here. What's the chamber's take on that? I'm I'm very curious.
1: Well, it's you know we have been a magnet for clean uh, for investment in clean tech and and renewables more than any other jurisdiction in the country, and that's because we've had we have a deregulated electricity market. We're very different than any anybody else. And so that means that whatever we do in Alberta, we have to attract private capital. And that means when private capital comes to any jurisdiction, it needs stability and certainty in order to be able to take the risks that we would like to see. And so yes, the province did move forward on a, on a moratorium. And then we go back to the fact that we need uh, investment certainty to deploy capital uh, and it's really important that the government instill confidence uh, it, it, to investors it, to ensure that the, there's a long term, long term viability of all types of energy in the province, including renewable energy. And, uh, we, you know, we're we're committed to working with government to make sure that this 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 happens and that the six month uh, timeframe that that's been committed to is the one that is, that's the one that sticks
0: okay um you 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 threaded that needle very nicely uh kudos to you on that one but i with the whole issue of certainty and and its effect on private capital uh i think is one that deserves a little more uh a little more discussion because i don't know how many times i've heard complaints in alberta uh, particularly in Calgary, that you know the federal government's regulatory uncertainty in a variety of areas affects, uh, has negatively affected the uh, the uh, investment of, of of private capital in the Alberta energy industry, and here we have this time the calls coming from inside the house.
1: Yeah, and so you know let's just sort of step back for a second. I think this issue of regulatory certainty and understanding there's a fundamental issue that everybody has to understand. The energy sector itself and business as a whole understands this. This is a long cycle business. People make investment decisions today that are 30, 40 years out. And so in order to do that, everybody has to be aware, whether you're municipal, federal, or provincial, that there is a level of certainty that needs to exist in order for that long cycle investment to take place. And unfortunately, broadly speaking, everybody thinks too short term and that that short cycle mentality does not support long cycle investments and that's as true for the markets as it is for uh for governments unfortunately so if markets are quarterly focused or you know 30 half a year focused know we have governments generally focused on the on the election cycle and that's unfortunate it's unfortunate on both both sides and i would say that when i was still covering the energy sector as a columnist there was one fellow i used to talk to who had been in the business for years and he always used to say the market's broken it does not understand long cycle versus short cycle investment and i would argue the same sort of mentality has unfortunately come to roost um in the government uh, mindset peter law he did not have that Because if he did, we wouldn't have the oil sands today. And that, I think, is where I keep coming back to. So we have to really think about what's good from a long-term perspective. How do you provide that certainty? And how do you make sure that the investment's de-risked? How do you make sure that that capital can be deployed in a way that is beneficial, not just for a year or two, but for 10, 20, 30 years to make it economic?
0: I have to say, I'm seeing Lougheed mentioned more and more. I mean, Lougheed's always been the most popular premier, at least as long as I've been around. Best uh, prime
1: minister we never had.
0: Best prime minister, there we go. But the what he did is he had a vision for where the energy sector needed to go, How to that efforts needed to be uh, undertaken by the provincial government in order to make sure that Alberta got more value out of its resources. It wasn't just a rip and ship, that there was a petrochemical the complex or petrochemical uh, industry that, that grew up, that there was, uh, that there was uh Astra, So we had to, the, uh, the oil sands resource, they got exploited uh, on and on and on. And, and I, but we're seeing that now come back and people are saying, okay, now that was a good, that was a great goal. And we need to revisit that 50 years on because now the, basically the markets that we've relied upon for both gas and oil are in danger of of peaking and then beginning to decline that affects our competitiveness our revenue can affect our government revenue our jobs all of that sort of thing so what's law 2.0 look like from the point of view of the calgary chamber of commerce
1: it means government supporting the investment and co-investing and helping to de-risk technologies that can be used to decarbonize because i would argue that if you can do it if if Astra 1.0 was, was the way we got the barrels out of the ground let's just sort of broadly apply it uh, if you can decarbonize then all of a sudden your industry your resource base becomes viable for a very long time but now the world's changed significantly and the way to get this done is to have that co-investment model so that there is a de-risking that there is support for it and look, that's basically what's happened in the states. When you think about all the technologies that we've relo- that we've come to rely on, whether it's Apple or wh- whoever, so much of it came out of a out of DARPA that was funded by the government that was translated into other industries. So the U.S. has done this in a different way, and we have to really take a page out of that. So that goes as much to the resource innovation cluster as it does to a, co- a viable co-investment model, so that you can actually further the development of technology. Which is what basically Israel has done. And that's why it's been so successful.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, that's what the US Inflation Reduction Act is all about, is is de-risking private investment in in the various uh you know, in in a clean grid in in electric vehicles and hydrogen hubs and on and on and on. And, uh, and so I, I you and I certainly be be agreed on that, and and we're calling it industrial policy again. This is the new yeah. industrial policy. Yeah, sure. uh, where yeah, where government comes forward. Now I have a hobby horse that I ride all the time, and it's called okay. bitumen beyond combustion. Yep, because uh, I uh, well, it's not you know, Alberta innovates has done world class world-class yeah. research on turning yeah. bitumen which is an amazing resource the yeah. fact that we burn bitumen is it should be is a is a crime i tell you we should be making stuff out of it and and alberta innovates is now a couple of years away from having a, a commercial process to turn bitumen into carbon fiber precursor there are other products that that are earlier in this in the uh the research and development stage uh that uh, that may be commercialized later in, in the decade, and. If we're talking about a natural resource innovation supercluster, then turning hydrocarbons into materials, advanced materials for a post-combustion world seems to me to be logical. It's just the next logical step. And you build those markets over time as potentially your fuels markets decline over time. Is that, would that view of Alberta's hydrocarbons go down well in the, in the, in your chamber?
1: Interestingly enough, uh, it's it's about what you do with the product that you have. Okay, so whatever however energy demand continues over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, we have the best asphalt coming from the oil sands. So let's figure out how to how to process it, package it, and send it around the world so other jurisdictions can use it for their paving needs. So start there. Interestingly enough, one of the interesting companies that came out of creative destruction labs a couple of years ago was a company called Carbonova. And it was uh, the thesis project of a PhD student at the University of Calgary, and it's about carbon fiber, using it to manufacture products. And when you think about how much carbon fiber is being used and why it's being used from a resilience perspective, a strength perspective, it's lightweight, um, this is the material of the future. And we should actually be looking at it and saying we should be a manufacturing hub for uh, for carbon fiber that can be used to to you know whether it's cars planes you name it carb- bicycles cellos I mean it's it's every, right you know uh, Amanda Forsyth, the cellist to um, with the National Arts Center Orchestra has a carbon fiber cello so this is a this is a, a absolutely an opportunity but you know what's happened is we've gotten so used as a country as a as a continent to outsource as opposed to manufacture and develop internally, it's it's a mindset that has to change. And we have to think about ourselves as manufacturers and producers, not just exporters. And this goes back to you know why he wanted to add bad value, which is why we have such a strong petrochemical industry. Let's go back well, there.
0: Well, I'll tell you a little story then because uh, a couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, Alex Wach, who's the business development VP for Zoltec manufacturing, Zoltec Industries out of okay. Missouri they're one of the big american carbon fiber manufacturers and he's been working with the alberta innovates folks as they develop this carbon fiber precursor and so we got talking about this i said look alex uh if they if alberta innovates is successful and comes up with this carbon with this precursor that's maybe half the cost of you know the existing precursor and so that brings down the price of carbon fiber significantly i said would you build a plant or or more, more than one plant in alberta and he said you always build the carbon fiber plant as close to the source of the precursor as you can so he said yes we've already had conversations we would we would build uh, a carbon fiber plant in alberta well if one will do it more will do it this, this seems like yeah. a general principle in the industry you build close yeah. to the source of the precursor and
1: that's how we found the petrochemical industry right exactly exactly
0: right and so you know this Albertans have been wanting to diversify the economy. I mean, diversify is like it's like this, you know, it's a slogan. It's a, everybody, everybody supports diversification. We never known how to do it. And here's an opportunity to do it. You yeah. can build, you can, you can continue to produce your hydrocarbons. Then you turn it into something else and you can have two instead of one. Exactly. That, okay. So the chamber is all on board with that. And that's a, we're
1: all about diversification because we know, and I think this is the biggest lesson from 2015, the oil price crashed in late 2014, and then we continue to see the challenges that we had. We saw hundreds of thousands of people you know, across the country, both in Calgary and across the country, lose jobs. And uh, it was a really, really tough time for the province. The um, COVID hit, just as the, energy, the oil price is starting to recover, we have COVID. So seven lean years, it's biblical, yes, you can use that, uh, <laughs> of really recognizing that we actually have to diversify because we are price takers, we're far from market, and we have a relatively high cost product. So what do we need to do? We need to figure out how to diversify. Yes, it's sort of a stable part of our economy, but let's figure out what else we can do. And so to the credit of a number of business people in Calgary came together and said, okay, this is it, we're done. We absolutely have to figure out how to diversify and how to kickstart that innovation network. And that actually was, that sort of was the genesis of Creative Destruction Labs Rockies. They raised the money in one night and it has become the most successful chapter of CDL in the country because people realized they needed to deliberately support the innovation that would lead to economic diversification. So we've had you know, energy sector initiatives that are very exciting, life sciences, fintech um ag tech the agriculture sector is something we haven't talked about i mean that's a huge opportunity for alberta and so there are so many things that we can do as a province and we can't just we were very lucky we could rely on the energy sector and the oil price and natural gas price for a long time but that's just something i think after after we saw the oil price crash everybody finally realized this isn't a nice to have it's a must have so let's figure out how to do this and actually make it stick i mean remember we had Vencap, do you remember Vencap? That was also its its uh, ethos was to help diversify the economy. Eh, some things worked, some things didn't, but same idea. I think we've, we've actually, this is, we've got a critical mass going now and it's pretty exciting.
0: Deb, I want to wrap up our conversation with your view on the pace of the energy transition. And this is not an idle question or an idle right. topic. Uh, it is whether we see the global energy transition being fast, or whether we uh, see it being slow. In fact, somebody, uh, a well-known uh, person in the uh, Alberta energy media, sent me today, and I'll I won't mention the name to protect the guilty, but the uh, 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 Smeal presentation.
1: Oh yeah, and of course
0: yeah. Vakl is all about is all about the slow transition, right? Yes. Yeah. And. Uh, But how you perceive that, whether it's going, you know, whether the existential threat that we're talking about is something that's that's in the near term, maybe, you know, like seven to 10 years, seven to 12 years, something like that, or it's in the long term, whether it's 30, 40, 50 years where you really have to start worrying and make changes. That that has a lot to do with how people allocate capital, uh, what kind of policies the government brings in and supported by the business community and so on. So what's your take? Where does the Calgary Chamber of Commerce come down on slow transition versus fast transition?
1: I think so. Our position is this. It has to be a transition that is realistic in terms of timing, in terms of capital, in terms of people, in terms of resources. Because you talk about an energy transition, you talk about clean electricity, let's talk about all the minerals that we have to have in order to make that a reality. That's a issue, that's the part of the equation we haven't solved for yet. So whether it's increasing the you know, doubling or tripling the, the amount of copper we need to produce, the amount of lithium we need to produce, the amount of cobalt, this is not small, small things that you can f- fix overnight and access overnight. So our view is let's do it in a way that is, does not compromise affordability, does not compromise energy security. And what we have to realize, whether we like it or not, is that we have been working with a system and using a system, let's call it, let's say 98% built, 95% built. What we want to get to is 5% built right now. You can't just go from 95, uh, from 5 to 95 overnight. Like it's just not going to happen. And the dislocation, the, the, you compromise energy security and you cause all sorts of other issues, other into unintended consequences. So what we need is sound policy that recognizes the, the resources itself, the challenges and constraints of the basin, of the uh, capital, how do we allocate capital? How do we risk capital? How do we get the talent to do this? These are all big issues They cannot be solved overnight. So for example, you talk to somebody at Pathways and they'll tell you at some point they're going to be 25,000 people working on their project, okay? Then you talk about people in the clean electricity world and the electricity space, and they say, we need thousands of people as well. Where is everybody coming from? Robots can't do all this stuff. And so what we're advocating for is something that is, like I said, measured, mindful, uh, that respects the fact that where we want to go is very very uh, capital intensive, time intensive, people intensive. And we need a plan that allows companies and governments to work together and risk capital and make it a reality, but it's not happening overnight. If you do it too fast, you compromise affordability, you compromise the energy security. And those two issues are just not on the table right now.
0: Yeah, I want a, a follow up question before I let you go. And that I want I know, to set the, t- the table. I want to advance a little hypothesis. And there's a a conflict in the the way people talk about the energy transition between whether it's policy-driven or technology and capital-driven, markets-driven. And I argue, because what they're arguing is essentially, if it's policy, then you can change the politics and you can change the government and you can change the policy so that it doesn't move as fast. And I argue that if you look at the... When this energy transition started in the 70s and 80s and 90s, when a lot of these new technologies were first introduced to the marketplace, is the fact it policy primed the pump. Policy primed the pump, but the in you know, the transition now is essentially running on its own. It's pumping on its own. And there is no, there's no holding it back. There's only managing it and <clears throat> And putting in place smart policy so that yeah. you don't get caught and you do things as, as smartly as you can but the, the transition to clean energy technologies is inevitable it is cannot be stopped it's a runaway train and so would you be on the runaway train be, or, you know it, or let me rephrase that would you be on the transition driven by policy team or the transition as a runaway team a train team.
1: I'm on the team of the world changed dramatically a year ago when the U S introduced its inflation reduction act and a year on $132 billion has been deployed, uh, 270 clean energy projects have been started. 86,000 jobs have been created through this, that world's not changing. And so from our perspective, we want to be as competitive as possible for some of those dollars that are flowing south instead of staying in Canada, because the train has left the station. And in fact, the U.S. turbocharged that train. And we as a, Canada, as, as a country and as a province have a unique opportunity to be part of this transition in a meaningful way. And so that's what we're actually advocating for is how do we make sure that we're on the level playing field with the IRA so that companies stay here and they don't go south. For example, Occidental Petroleum just bought carbon engineering. Where did carbon engineering start, you ask? (laughs) Oh, it started in Calgary when David Keith was at the University of Calgary and then it moved to Squamish. That in and of itself is an example of what we're not doing properly. They, They found a company in the States that would risk that, you know, trying their technology. First, Vicky Hall, the CEO of Occidental, talked about how they partnered with Carbon Engineering for a pilot project. And then less than six months later, we're hearing about the fact that they've bought the company for a billion dollars. That to me is a huge flag in terms of where we need to go as a country to make sure that, that the next Carbon Engineering doesn't get sold to a U.S. company. How about that?
0: Yeah, that's particularly important for Alberta and for Calgary because if you're going to be the you know natural resource innovation supercluster, the last thing you need is is innovative companies like Carbon Engineering running off to the U.S. and getting bought up by you know big American companies. You need to have right. them. And, and and you know what, in to the uh, provincial government's credit, uh, they've brought in some programs to help scale up, uh, yep. you know, small firms to make the medium firms and that's a good that's a good start it's yeah. just it's scale now we have to do this at a much bigger scale and yeah. and, and much faster Look, well, deb i really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to to do this interview and uh, we'll look forward to the next one thank you very much
1: thanks so much for having me today